as we continue to worship our sovereign God and King, as we continue to adore Him, let's now turn our attention to His holy and infallible Word in which we may behold His glory. So please open your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 to 37. And as is always appropriate, considering the great task ahead of us, Let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would now show us the glory and the majesty of our Savior, that we might be humbled in his presence and transformed into his likeness. Lord, we pray that we would be reminded from your word this morning that even though the kingdoms of this world may, might oppose and rage against your people, the cross and the empty tomb proclaim that you rule the kingdoms of men and in your great wisdom you give it to whomever you will. Comfort our troubled hearts, O Lord, and strengthen our faith that we might know joy and hope in all our trials. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Everything was going his way. He loved it when People paid attention to him, and he did not take lightly to those who opposed him. As king, he could take out his anger on whoever he wanted. And so he killed some, he arrested some, he would even throw political tantrums so that people from neighboring regions who depended on him for food would come running at the slightest displeasure of the king. And on an appointed day, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 12, that King Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon his throne, and he delivered an oration. It's a political address to these people, the people of Tyre and Sidon. They had no choice but to listen to this man who was probably ranting about their faults and telling them how lucky they were to have such a benevolent king as himself, a king who provided them with food. Now in politics, as you may all well know, flattery tends to be the currency you employ, especially when you need to appease someone and get what you want. And so Luke tells us that the people of Tyre and Sidon began to shout in response to Herod's speech, oh, the voice of a god and not of a man. And there he was, King Herod, strutting his stuff, soaking in the praises of men, adorned in the hideous swagger of his arrogance. This was a man who was drunk with power, was giddy with excitement over his control over people, especially the church. He opposed the Christians in his land. He had killed one of their leaders, arrested another. He was unstoppable. Mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, thought Herod. And as soon as the foul stench of human boasting rose up, the justice of heaven rained down. Luke tells us immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Friends, this was a divine death sentence that was brought forward. You know, if this would not have happened, Herod would have one day died anyway. And he would have still been eaten by worms in his grave. But sometimes to this end, for this purpose, that the living may know that it is the Most High who rules the kingdoms of men, God acts. God acts in justice in order to humble the wicked. He knows how to humble the proud. Now this act of divine justice would have been a source of great comfort to the early church who were being opposed and pushed around and displaced by earthly authorities as they sought to be faithful to the commands of Jesus. You know, they would have been reminded that irrespective of how things may have seemed, all authority in heaven and on earth belong to their Savior. It is Jesus Christ who is Lord. And despite all that happened, it was Jesus' glory that spread and not Herod. 
Acts 12.24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Now, in Daniel chapter 4, we encounter a similar story about King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of ancient Babylon. He was without question a powerful man, and his kingdom extended from the Persian Gulf in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, from Egypt in the south, all the way to Iran in the north. His fame and military exploits were well known to all in the ancient world. And this was the man, if you remember, who burned down both Jerusalem and its temple and had taken Daniel and his friends along with many other Israelites into exile. Now from a pagan perspective, it looked as though the gods of Babylon had won over the God of Israel. And yet the book of Daniel tells us that all of this was ordained by the Lord. Israel was sent into exile as an act of God's judgment for their idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness. And God had used the king of Babylon as an instrument to execute his judgment upon the people of Israel. Why God even refers to Nebuchadnezzar as my servant in Jeremiah 25 verse 9. You see, God is the one who is sovereign over earthly kings and kingdoms. Later in the book of Daniel, God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream that his kingdom would soon come to an end. It would be succeeded by other earthly kingdoms until God himself would send his anointed one at his appointed time. He would send his Messiah from the line of David to atone from the, for the sins of his people. We'll see that in Daniel 9.24. The Messiah will come and he'll inaugurate and establish an everlasting kingdom. Through Daniel and his friends, Nebuchadnezzar was not only told about the one true God and his coming kingdom, but he had also seen how this God had delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from his own hand. God's deliverance was coming and Nebuchadnezzar got a chance to see a little glimpse of that deliverance when a heavenly person would come down, enter into the afflictions of his people and save them. See, the book of Daniel teaches us that God is the true sovereign who sets up kings and removes kings. He is the one who is able to sustain his people even in exile as they trust in his word in the face of great opposition. Now, while Nebuchadnezzar was impressed with God's power, he did not believe in God's sovereignty over him, nor did he believe that God's word would come to pass. So if you remember, chapter 3 ends with Nebuchadnezzar praising the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for delivering them, but he doesn't seem to realize that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob rules over him too. But in this passage, Nebuchadnezzar will learn a hard lesson. He will learn that despite all his power, even power over God's people, God is the one who is sovereign over his kingdom and over all the kingdoms of the earth. And those who exalt themselves against this God, he is able to humble. God wants Nebuchadnezzar to know that. He wanted everyone in Babylon to know that. And he wanted his people in exile to know that. And it's also important for us to know. Notice why God humbles the proud. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it and sets over it the lowliest of men. Look at verse 25. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Look down at verse 32 until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You can't miss the point of this passage. But why did God want this account to be recorded? Why did he want the exiles to know this truth? That's repeated three times. Why does he want us to know this truth? And I think the answer to this is found in the way that these accounts are recorded and arranged. Both chapters 4 and 5 are accounts of how God humbles two proud Gentiles kings, Nebuchadnezzar 
and Belshazzar, four and five. And these two chapters find themselves sandwiched between chapters three and chapter six, two accounts of how God delivers his people. And that tells us something about the writer's point. God wanted the exiles to know, and he wants us to know, that despite all appearances, despite all the setbacks, despite the limitations, the trials, despite the opposition from arrogant rulers and, and governments, no matter how bad things may look, here's the one thing that ought to give us comfort and strength and hope. God is sovereign over all earthly kings and kingdoms, and his kingdom purposes for his people will be accomplished. He will judge the proud and deliver his people. Now, we've already seen that Nebuchadnezzar still views God as the God of Daniel and the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But this passage begins with a surprising doxology, a praise of God. So that's our first point for this morning, a surprising doxology. Look at verses 1 to 3. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. This is a way of addressing everyone in his kingdom, in his empire. Peace be multiplied to you. Now this sounds like the beginning of one of Paul's letters, doesn't it? Grace to you and peace from God. Well, it sounds like that because it is that. It is a royal letter from Nebuchadnezzar to his subjects. Perhaps he wrote this greeting himself. Or maybe he dictated it to Daniel, who wrote it down along with the rest of this passage. Uh, we don't know for sure. But one thing we can be sure of is that Nebuchadnezzar seems to be relating somewhat differently to God. Look at verse 2. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders, the miraculous acts, that the Most High God has done for me. Now that is a paradigm shift in Nebuchadnezzar's understanding. He's gone from, oh, God's done this for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He delivered his servants. He is their own God. He's gone from that too. I want you to know what God has done for me. And to proclaim that, he says, is good. Friends, you cannot live a life of genuine Christian worship if you do not apply what you know about God and what He has done to your own heart. All theology must be applied in order to produce a life that is God-glorifying. All our study of God, all our knowledge of the Scriptures, of the Gospel, everything that God has so graciously revealed to us about Himself in the face of Jesus Christ, all of it, all theology must be applied to our own hearts if it is to produce a life of praise and worship. Think about what's going on here with Nebuchadnezzar. You know, so often when I ask people about the sermon, they will recount the points, they will remember an illustration, they will tell me all the new things they learned from the text that they didn't see before. And don't get me wrong, that's important. I'm grateful that you're paying attention. But what would greatly encourage my soul and glorify God is to hear what God has done for you personally through the preaching of the Word. What has changed? How is the Word convicting you of specific sins? How are you being encouraged to obey particular commands that you haven't been obeying? How are you being com comforted in your particular trial or sorrow? What truth did you hear that is helping you overcome your specific temptation to leave the path of faithful obedience and take a worldly shortcut? Brothers and sisters, talk to each other about those things. Talk to each other about what God has done for you. See, Nebuchadnezzar is eager to tell others what God had done for him. And he exclaims, look at verse 3, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders! 
His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion, his kingly rule, endures from generation to generation. Now that phrase, generation to generation, that's a very covenantal phrase. You know, Nebuchadnezzar sounds like the psalmist. Psalm 79, verse 13. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. Nebuchadnezzar is praising God just like someone in Israel would. Looking forward to his coming everlasting kingdom. He's rejoicing over God's rule over his people. You know, this passage begins with praise and it ends with similar praise. Look at verse 34. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And this makes you wonder, doesn't it? Why the change? What happened to Him? Well, thankfully, we are told what happened. We are given an account. We're given an account in the form of a flashback. So Nebuchadnezzar writes this letter, and he's telling you, Here's the reason why the changes happened. Let me tell you what happened. And this is an account that involved, point number two, a startling dream. A startling dream. And this account begins in a setting of security and solace. When all is well. Look at verses four to seven. I, Nebuchadnezzar, so he's recounting what happened. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. So everything was going well. He was calm, content, safe, secure. Life was good, at least from an earthly perspective. He was flourishing, wasn't he? But all of that changed very quickly. Verse 5, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Now, like before, we know that these dreams are, are prophecies in image form that need to be interpreted. And this particular dream, unlike the first one in chapter 2, didn't simply trouble him, it frightened him. He was terrified. You know, this dream we will soon learn is about Nebuchadnezzar's coming judgment. This was a man who did not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He saw the demonstration of his power, but he did not know him. He did not trust in his word concerning the coming of his Messiah and his everlasting kingdom. But as far as he was concerned, he didn't need to. Things were peachy. Now, friend, if you're not a Christian... I wonder if you feel like this. Perhaps you've got a great job, a beautiful family, a car, adequate savings, good health. Life is good. And you feel like you don't need all this religious nonsense. Maybe it's helpful for people who are struggling to find meaning and purpose in life. Maybe it's for those people who are depressed all the time and unfulfilled. But not for you. You're happy. You're at ease and prospering, just like Nebuchadnezzar. But I want to caution you this morning. Just because all is well from an earthly standpoint does not mean that God is pleased with you or that you are in good standing with Him. Far from it. You see, the Bible teaches that all of humankind is estranged from God. Because we are all sinners, we have turned our backs on a holy God and His purposes for us. We have rebelled against Him. And for this reason, God stands over us in judgment. But because God is patient and long-suffering, in His kindness, He does not visit His judgment on us immediately. Rather, His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You know, if we focus on ourselves and all that we have gained in this life, then friend, what will you do when death comes knocking on your door? You see, God says in the scriptures that the wages of sin is death. And because we are all sinners, we will all one day die 
and stand before God to hear his judgment. And the Bible tells us that eternal condemnation awaits those who do not turn to God through Jesus Christ alone. You know, our chief concern should not be what we think of ourselves, but about what God says about us. We must first understand who God is and who we are, and for that we must turn to God's word. We must understand what his word says. Now God sent his word to Nebuchadnezzar through a dream, but he couldn't understand it. Look at verse 6. So this is what Nebuchadnezzar did. So I made a decree, he gave an order, that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. Now, you would think that after the first dream and the proven incompetence of his so-called wise men, Nebuchadnezzar would have sought out Daniel first. But he didn't. You see, fear and terror have clouded his judgment. And as powerful as this man was, he's lost. He's lost. Until the interpreter of God's word arrives, his prophet, Daniel. Look at verses 8 to 9. At last, Daniel came in before me. You can almost hear the relief in that sentence. At last. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar many years ago had given Daniel a Babylonian name to show him who was really in charge. You know, this was all part of his Babylonian assimilation program for the new exiles. Belteshazzar means, may the god Bel protect the king. The fact that Daniel is called that in this passage is meant to show us where Nebuchadnezzar is still putting his trust in his god for protection. You see, Daniel's god was powerful. He knew that. Daniel's god was useful. But he was one among the many. A god you could be tolerant of, supportive of. But he's not my god. He's, he's, he's Daniel's god. The one who helped Daniel interpret dreams. The one who was with him. Which is why he calls him Belteshazzar, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. This is exactly how Pharaoh thought of Joseph in Egypt. Genesis 41 verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? in whom is the Spirit of God. And so Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel his troubling dream. Look at the verse. And I told him the dream, saying, verse 9, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the Spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. You know, he praises Daniel as though Daniel did this for his own glory. Uh, he would think that, naturally, because that's how he thought of his own accomplishments. Everything I do is for my glory. Therefore, what Daniel does is probably for his glory. Good job, Daniel. You know, Nebuchadnezzar lived according to the flesh because he had set his mind on the things of the flesh. His self-centered, sinful nature was ruling him. And so he says to Daniel, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. And he goes on to describe his dream. Look at verses 10 to 18. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. So here's the imagery. He sees a tree, a tree that is off this world, off the earth. But it's a renowned tree. It's famous. The top goes to heaven. You know, that should remind you of the Tower of Babel. It's visible to the end of the whole earth. Now keep in mind, this is dream imagery. It's full of symbolism. No actual tree reaches up to heaven, and no actual tree can be seen from all the ends of the earth. Now this is symbolism. This is symbolic imagery telling us that the tree was renowned, was famous. It had unusual scope and unusual reach. Verse 12, its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So there were great benefits from this tree for all. But then something happened, 
And this is what troubled Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one. This is a reference to an angel, a holy one. Deuteronomy 33 verse 2 tells us that when the Lord came down on Mount Sinai, he came down with 10,000 of his holy ones, his angels. So this is a divine messenger, a, a watcher, someone who keeps watch over the affairs of men. A watcher came down from heaven. Verse 14, he proclaimed aloud and said thus, so he announces heaven's judgment. Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaf, leaves and scatter its fruits. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from under from its branches. So no more greatness, no more renown, no more benefits for all. The tree is to be struck down as an act of divine judgment. But it's not to be utterly destroyed. Verse 15. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth. So this is the basal part attached to the root after the trunk is chopped off. You know, when you look at a stump, it's not impressive. It's a sorry sight. It's a sad reminder of what once was. You know, the stump is to be left behind, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. So even what is left is to be rigidly bound, restrained with this metal band, preventing any growth or recovery. And then the symbolism unfolds further. Let him, did you notice the change in pronoun? We've been talking about a tree. All of a sudden, the writer says, let him pay attention to the Holy Spirit's grammar. So the tree, which is now a, which is now a bound stump, is a person. Let him, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. He is to have no protection exposed to the environment. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. So he will have to fend for himself, for his sustenance, just like the animals. But that's not all. Verse 16, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. So this man will be made into something less than a man. He will become subhuman. He will have the primitive mind of an animal until seven periods of time pass by. You know, seven in the Bible indicates a, a period of completeness. And, and these periods of time or seasons may refer to seven years, given the way how time is described in the book of Daniel. Verse 17, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. You know, this is another way of saying this is a divine sentence. This is not a human or a natural tragedy. This is a divine judgment. But why? For what purpose or end? Look at the text, verse 17. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. The point of this judgment, this humiliation, is to make one thing crystal clear. Not just to this man, but to every person who looks upon what's left of him. And the point is this, that God is sovereign and not man. He is the one who sets up kings and kingdoms, presidents and democracies. He rules the kingdoms of men and in his wisdom, he can give it to powerful men or feeble men. Competent men or incompetent men. And as easily as he can give it, he can take it away just as easily. You know, as one author put it, human governments, tyrannical or democratic, are God's lackeys who have tenure only at his disposal. And that was the end of the dream. And so a troubled Nebuchadnezzar now asks Daniel for an explanation. Verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me this interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now it seems as though as Nebuchadnezzar was narrating his dream, 
the Lord was enabling Daniel to understand it simultaneously. And he understood it and was himself troubled by the impending disaster. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. He was so distressed by this that it became obvious to the king. Look at the text. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. You know, this was Daniel's polite and courteous way of saying, I really hope for your sake that this does not happen. Remember, he's troubled by it. Not because he doesn't believe it, but he's troubled by it precisely because he does believe it. This is God's word of judgment. And what should amaze us is Daniel's compassion for the king. He is genuinely worried about this king because he knows that the threat is real. Friends, I think that Daniel embodies for us how our heart ought to, ought to feel, how our hearts ought to feel as we talk to non-Christians about the gospel. God is not to be trifled with. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5:11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. This should motivate and inform our evangelism. You know, Daniel faithfully sets forth the meaning of the dream and he doesn't mince words. Look at verses 20 to 27. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king. You are that tree who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven, your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. In other words, the day you acknowledge the supremacy of God over all things, including your own head, that is the day the Lord will restore to you your kingdom. So Daniel looks at this judgment, this awful judgment, and he says, O king, there is mercy here. There is mercy here from the hand of the Lord. There's a stump. If the Lord wanted to, he could have killed you and destroyed you completely. But there's still time. There's still time, O king. Look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. Turn away from your acts of lawlessness, he says. You know, Nebuchadnezzar's cruelty and selfish nature was legendary. And Daniel is not afraid to call it by its names. Your sins, he says. Not your faults or mistakes. Not your personality flaws. Turn away from your sins. Your rebellion is against God. And if your repentance is not genuine, if you will not do what is right in the sight of the Lord, you know, that's what he means when he says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. There's a putting off and there's a putting on. 
Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities. That's another word for wicked deeds. By showing mercy to the oppressed. That tells you one of Daniel's chief concerns was that Nebuchadnezzar was a tyrant. He was a bully. He oppressed the weak. He exploited its citizens and the exiles in his kingdom. He made sure no one got their end of service benefits. And Daniel says, show mercy that there may perhaps, perhaps, the future belongs to the sovereign Lord. If your repentance is true, he may allow you to continue in your rule. There may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Imagine a person like Nebuchadnezzar hearing that. Your next minute, your next breath is not in your hands, O king. You are not the captain of your destiny. You know, nothing could have been clearer than that message. Just as Jonah preached to the residents of Nineveh, Daniel brought a message of judgment to King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth at that time. And what did he do with that message? He ignored it. And he was soon going to find out that the Most High does not make empty threats. And that brings us to our third point. We see here in this passage a severe discipline. A severe discipline falls upon the king. Look at verses 28 to 33. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. That means everything that God said would happen, happened. And this is how it happened. Verse 29. At the end of 12 months. Now, don't miss that little detail. Nebuchadnezzar had a whole year to repent. Friends, think about the mercy and the patience of God. Now, all of this was happening to someone who had heard God's word and ignored it. And yet God was patient. Incredibly patient. But he acted just as he said he would. Beloved, I wonder if you have been hearing God's word, perhaps through the sermons here at Grace, or perhaps through the faithful exhortations and counsel of members, and you've been ignoring it, maybe for days or months or even years. What does that mean for you? What will that mean for you? Well, you could say, well, pastor, you don't have to worry. I'm a Christian. I've been reconciled to God through Christ. I have repented of my sins and I trust in Jesus. I'm safe and secure in him. Beloved, let me remind you that those for whom Christ has purchased justification, he has also purchased repentance. You're not just saved by him, but you're also united to him through his spirit. Yes, you are loved by him, but don't forget that the Lord disciplines those he loves. And sometimes that discipline can be severe. Don't provoke God. Don't provoke God. You know, the God who dislocated Jacob's hip and the God who threw Jonah overboard, he knows how to deal with you. Do not take his grace for granted. Repent. Nebuchadnezzar, who did not know God, certainly took his merciful word for granted, didn't he? At the end of 12 months, look at the text, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon? You know, Babylon's architecture was renowned at the time. The king would have been gazing at statues and tall structures and temples and gates and large walls, gardens. It would have been quite the sight to see Babylon the Great, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Oh, glory to me! 
know, when Jesus confronted the unbelief of the Jews of his day, he said that the reason they couldn't believe in him was because they were glory thieves. Listen to John 5.44. Jesus said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You know, Nebuchadnezzar lived not for the glory of God, to make much of God, but he lived for his own glory. He was bragging, glorying in himself. But what does living for God's glory mean? What does, it live, what does living for God's glory look in the book of Daniel? Well, in the book of Daniel, living for God's glory means resisting idolatry and trusting in God's word concerning the coming Messiah and his kingdom. Despite the Babylonian pressures and hostilities. Beloved, let me ask you, are you living for God's glory in this way? Are you willing to risk losing much in the face of worldly pressures and temptations so that you can obey the word of Christ as you wait for his return? Or are you living for yourself? You know, one way you can check yourself to see if you're living for yourself is by assessing your prayers. What do you pray about? Are your prayers mainly about you? Mainly about what you want? Or do you pray about those things that the Lord wants for you? And remember, what He wants for you, He has revealed it to you in His Word. Don't ignore His Word like Nebuchadnezzar did. You know, Nebuchadnezzar thought he could carry on as usual. But he was wrong. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass, made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. You know, Nebuchadnezzar now had the mind of an animal. He thought that he was an ox and he ate grass. The man who was clothed in luxury was now naked and exposed to the elements with no one to do his manicure or pedicure. No one to cut his hair, trim his nails. The point of comparing his long hair to eagle's feathers and nails to that of a bird's claw is to show us how animal-like, how beast-like Nebuchadnezzar has become. Remember the imagery of the tree? It gave shade for beasts and the birds, and they're fed from the abundance of the fruit of the tree. Now Nebuchadnezzar himself was like a beast with no shade. And he had to eat grass. Instead of a beautiful tree, the proud king was a beast. You know, this is the Holy Spirit's way of showing us that in this curse, this judgment, Nebuchadnezzar's external appearance, his external features, have now become aligned with the beastliness of his heart. Now they match. Beloved, this is what pride and self-centeredness is. It is a depraved, brutish attitude towards God. This is all over the Bible. When David was bitter to, against God, he writes, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Psalm 73 verse 22. Or take the sinful, unrepentant, and stubborn person as he is described in Psalm 32 verse 9. He's described as a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and brittle. Paul describes those who opposed him at Ephesus as beasts in 1 Corinthians 15 32. Rulers and governments that oppose God's people in the book of Revelation are pictured as what? Beasts. You know, the clearest connection between pride and its animal nature is described for us in Psalm 49 verse 20. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Beloved, when God created man, 
he made man in his image and crowned him with glory and honor. And he gave him dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the animals, over the beasts. To be human means to bear God's image and to exercise his loving authority over all things according to his will and purpose. To move away from that intent, to move away from God's authority, to reject it and to live for our own desires and our own purposes is dehumanizing. It's to be like those things not made in God's image, like beasts. You know that, don't you? Sin is de dehumanizing. It's animal-like in its nature. Have you ever been angry? Really angry? Tempted to sin or catch yourself sinning? You know how beast-like anger can be. Or think about the sin of lust. Think about what you imagine. Think about what you could do if you let your imagination run free. You could be like a beast. You know the animal nature of powerful temptations. You know, when proud sinners insist on doing things their own way and following their own desires, God sometimes gives people up to a debased mind. A debased mind. We see that in Romans 1, don't we? Paul describes the sin of homosexuality as self-worship and idolatry. When you make sinful desires your God, God says, okay. God gives you up to it. He gives you up to those desires as an act of judgment. Nebuchadnezzar in his pride was behaving like a beast and so God says, all right, become one. Now people look at this passage and they try to determine if Nebuchadnezzar had some sort of psychotic break. You know, is this a psychiatric illness? Look at verse 16. Let a beast's mind be given to him. Does that sound like a scientific description to you? He was made to eat grass. God did that. And he remained like that until the appointed time. When instead of looking to himself, he is given a sober disposition. And that brings us to our final point. A sober disposition when Nebuchadnezzar turns to God. Look at verses 34 to 37. At the end of the days. Again, this is a theme in Daniel. God determines the precise times and seasons. Friends, we are not in control of anything. Let this stabilizing truth help you in uncertain times, in times of trial. He determines the precise times and seasons. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. You know, this, is what, this wasn't a spontaneous remission of his mental abilities. Something happened. Something happened that made this animal-like creature, this beast, look up to heaven. And that which was taken from him was returned to him. His reason, his sanity returned. You know, when your life is marked with sin and pride, you are the most irrational being. You know, if this pulpit does not stand straight, if it behaves like a noodle, doesn't hold up these papers and this Bible, wouldn't we call it useless? In the same way, if a man or a woman created with a reasonable and rational mind for the express purpose of glorifying God and living according to His purposes, if we turned away from Him and started doing something else, that would be irrational and unreasonable. Beloved, sin, all sin is insanity. It is irrational. It is spiritual suicide. You know, in his pride and self-sufficiency, Nebuchadnezzar had become so twisted in his thinking. But now in looking heavenward and receiving his reason, he does what he was made to do. 
He does what he was made to do. Look at the text. And I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He's not only confessing God's sovereignty. He's confessing his rule over his covenant people. Verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. You see, for the first time, Nebuchadnezzar understands creatureliness. He understands his limitations. We are dependent on God for everything. Apart from him, we are of no repute. Our value, our dignity, our usefulness lies in the fact that we are made in God's image. We are made by him and we are made for him. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You know, this should simultaneously humble us and comfort us in our trials. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You know, this is a confession of God's great power, which Nebuchadnezzar himself had personally experienced. God had showed him mercy and after this restored his kingdom back to him. Not because he deserved it or gave it to him as a reward for his humility. But this was an act of his free mercy. Look at verse 36. At the same time my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. When they heard that Nebuchadnezzar's mental state had been restored, they received him back. All was what? Returned. There's that word again. Returned. Was given back. By whom? And I was established. That's again a passive word. Established by whom? By God. In my kingdom. And still more greatness was what? Added to me. It was returned. It was established for me. It was added to me. Notice how differently Nebuchadnezzar is viewing all that's happening to him. He is now sane. He is now sane. You see, sanity begins when heaven restores us. That's when sanity begins. He not only views reality differently, but notice how he views God. Verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. See, in acknowledging this, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, what God did to me, that was right. That was right. It was just. God can do no wrong. Beloved, sanity begins when you agree with the author of reason, when you agree with the one who defines what is right and just and true. See, Nebuchadnezzar, the proud ruler, had come to his senses. You see, God wanted his people, those Israelites in exile, to know that he was sovereign over the kings of this world. He was the one who raised up kings and set them on thrones and he could easily depose them at will. He is able to humble any arrogant ruler. But here's why God did this. Here's why God did this, to, to teach his people, to comfort his people in exile, to assure them that despite how things may have seemed or how hopeless they might have looked, they could hold on to him. They could trust in the word of their sovereign God who humbles the proud. They could trust in him and resist idolatry and pursue faithfulness. And brothers and sisters, that's the lesson for all of us. No matter how hopeless things might look, we know who's sitting on the throne. The God who has the power to humble tyrants like Nebuchadnezzar could certainly ensure that his Messiah would come and deliver his people. And in the fullness of time, not at a time when men determined, not at a time that was politically conducive to things, but at a time that God determined, he sent his son who took on flesh and entered into our sinful world to deliver us from selfishness and pride and our rebellious nature. Christ, the true King and sovereign Lord of the cosmos, the one who is worthy of infinite honor and glory, he set aside his heavenly majesty and he did the unthinkable. Unlike earthly rulers, the Son of God humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, 
so that he might save all those who repent and believe in him. Friends, in the person of Jesus Christ, heaven comes down to us. Heaven comes down to us so that all those who exalt themselves may be humbled and live for the glory of the true king. You know, Christ is that stone that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his first dream, the stone that crushes every other kingdom and becomes a mighty mountain that covers the whole earth. Oh, you remember that tree in his dream? You know, the tree in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is very significant. The prophet Ezekiel, one of Daniel's contemporaries, who was also in Babylon, describes the people of Assyria as a great tree which God would cut down as an act of judgment. When Isaiah describes God's judgment on the people of Israel, he describes it in a similar way, as a tree that will be cut down, but a stump will remain, says Isaiah. There will be a remnant people, and the Messiah will come from the stump of Jesse, Isaiah 11.1. 1. And here in this passage, Nebuchadnezzar is identified with a tree that is cut down. And when Jesus came, he lived a life of perfect obedience, glorifying his Father in every way. This is the one who should have been exalted, and yet in his great mercy, he takes the place of sinners. And he goes to another tree, the tree of judgment. He goes to the cross, taking the judgment of God that proud and selfish sinners like you and I rightly deserve. He does this so that we can receive the forgiveness of our sins and his righteousness by faith. After three days, he rose from the dead so that those who are hardened and disobedient might receive eternal life. Jesus inaugurated his everlasting kingdom, and one day he will return to consummate it. And just as God was sovereign and able to humble arrogant rulers in the Old Testament, Jesus humbled the arrogant prince of this age, didn't he? In his coming, he judged Satan, who is described as the ruler of this world, John 12, 32. He told Pilate at his interrogation that he could only do what he did because authority had been given to him. It could be given, it could be taken back, returned. Pilate was able to do what he was able to do because God had allowed him to do that. See, despite what things look like on earth, God is still in charge. Despite the shame of the cross, despite his suffering, Jesus reigned from that cross and he made a mockery of Satan and his minions on that cross. That's Colossians 2.15. And because of this, God has exalted Jesus and given him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, to become a Christian is to be rescued from the insanity and the dehumanizing nature of sin so that we can be truly human. And friend, if you do not have a saving relationship with this Jesus, let me plead with you, knowing the, the fear of God's judgment, let me plead with you to turn to Him. Agree with heaven's assessment that you are a sinner. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. Turn to Jesus. And listen to this. All those who behold the beauty of the Savior and His work can be saved from the beastliness of their sin. Behold the beauty of Christ and be saved from the beastliness of your sin. Beloved, the God who humbles the proud is the one who saves us. And it, it is to Him we must look to in all our trials and our sorrows. The cross and the empty tomb proves that He reigns. All His works are right and all His ways are just. Despite what things may seem like, uncertain days, Hostile rulers, arrogant governments, societal pressures. Remember, our Lord is on His throne. He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth. This is the one who say, says to us, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good will to give you the kingdom. Oh, friends, let those truths encourage you to remain steadfast during your exile. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and express our dependency, our neediness on you. Lord, we confess that we have so many limitations. And if we strive in our own strength, we will fail. 
And so come, O Lord, visit us from on high with the power of your Holy Spirit. May we, be, may we remember that he abides in us, that you are with us, that you will never leave or forsake us. Hold fast to us, O Lord. Help us remain faithful to you in an age that is hostile to Christ and his people. Strengthen your people. Give us hope. Comfort us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.